This is the Marketing Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Court Cassidy. Court is a TV writer, producer, songwriter, playwright, and author. He's won two Emmy Awards and three NAACP Image Awards for his work as a writer, producer, and television. His memoir, Not Your Father's America, An Adventure Raising Triplets in a Country Being Changed by Greed, was just published. And here today to talk about his career and latest book is Court Cassidy. Welcome to Unstorking, uh, Unstorking, <laughs> Uncorking a Story un, Court. Un, unstorking is good. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. I mean, considering the fact that we both have triplets, Stork, uh, maybe Stork was on my mind. That's the yeah, exactly. that, that Freudian slip. But, uh, yeah. uh, Court, I'm curious, where does, your, uh, where does your story begin? Well, the, the story of the book uh, begins in the early uh, 90s. I'm well into my television writing and producing career. In fact, I was doing a, uh, a daily live a television show, primetime show in New York called New York at Night with Clint Holmes. And it was <clears throat> it was like a master's degree in television, given what I'd done. I'd done a lot of live television. I'd done a lot of specials. But to go and do a live show every day in New York is, is a thing. And at the same time, my wife and I were trying to have a family, trying to start our family. Um, and we'd been trying for a little while before we went to New York to do the series. Um, so those two things were sort of going along side by side. And probably, as you know, in your career, the triplets came along side by side with our careers and trying to make a living and all that at the same time. So I, um, I, I'm curious, um, you know, where, where, in your career, when when you went from a family of two to a family of five, um, it sounds yes. like you were pretty far down the road in your career. It seems. 
Yeah, um, Barbara and I both. Barbara had her own, had just closed a big business doing model homes in California because of the turndown in the, in the real estate market. Uh, I was, um, my career was probably ascending. I mean, it was, or certainly a good, strong mid-career. I'd done a lot of things. I ended up winning my first Emmy for the show we did in New York. Uh, so I didn't have an Emmy yet, but um, and went on to do a lot of other stuff following the New York experience. Um, but I think we both, this, you may appreciate this, we both felt accomplished in what we, in our respective careers. And um, I had gone from being a writer, uh, an investi- investigative magazine writer, to being a television staff writer, to being a writer-producer. And, um, you know, we struggled with, with getting pregnant and it was sort of like, wow, we thought we were fairly successful people. <laughs> and, and, it, and it was a little, uh, a little bit of a, um, you know, it was confronting that, yeah. that it wasn't all that easy. Yeah. Well, and it takes a psychological toll, um, on you yes. because you start to question, you know, you say things like, you know, people do this so easily. And, and then you start to think to yourself, you know, we, we tried to prevent this, you know, from happening, you know, so hard. And then when you try and do it, like, it, there's parts of you that feel like there's something wrong with me. Um, and it, it's yes. sort of, that, that sort of, you know, thinking kind of, kind of creeps in. Um, yes, absolutely. So, That's so true, Mike. Yeah. I mean, and then, and, and, my, and my wife really felt it, you know, because, you know, in, in her right. mind, she was thinking, I, I mean, she's not here to, to, to talk about it, so I don't want to talk too much about her, but... You know, there there was, um, you know, a little depression, I would say, that, that kind of sunk in during that period of time in our life, too, because we were we were trying and, and unsuccessfully trying to, to start a family. Yeah, well. absolutely right. Um, and I appreciate that you really understand this. You know, we tried most of our young adult lives to not get pregnant, right. you know. And so you assume, well, if I, we stop using birth control, boom, it'll happen. And, of course, it didn't. Uh, and as you say, it's it's depressing, it's confronting, and I think for my wife especially, she she said to me at one point, she said, you know, I've I've run a business, I've I've you know, I've got a career, I've I've succeeded in so many ways, and why can't why can't we succeed at this? Well, you know, it it was yeah, very difficult. Yeah, um, you know, I, I do want to transition to after after your triplets were born. I mean, I, I had this experience where. Now, people would see me pushing a triplet stroller all over our neighborhood. I was all of 27 years old at the time. Um, and what I would do on the weekends, because there wasn't much to do with, with three little babies at home. We couldn't go anywhere. They were nine weeks premature. So, you know, we couldn't wow. really leave the house that much. So it was really, we had to kind of have our own little adventures. And I would just walk all over the neighborhood. And people would literally pull me over as I was walking. And they'd ask me, are they, are they triplets? And I said, yes. And then sometimes I'd be like, no, I just like babies. You know, I'm just. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just just love pushing kids around. I just love <laughs> pushing them uphill. That's but funny. Then they'd say, well, is it hard having triplets? And I'd be like, this is when you realize that there is such thing as a stupid question. Yes. Um, because I would be like, oh, yeah, it's, it's hard having triplets. I, I went from having zero babies to three babies in the span of three minutes, you know, not yeah. knowing yeah. what what was ahead of me. Um, but I, that's so true. But 
Did, did you we, have those we had a we had a, a single a stroller and a double because none of us wanted to go out with all three. You know, we just couldn't picture it. So two people always went out and we'd have the, the two and the one. Um, and they obviously looked the same age and they look they didn't they're not identical, um, but they're clearly fraternal. And we'd, you know, be going up the hill. We had a hill behind our house and we'd be pushing them along and we'd get somewhere and and somebody would come up and say, oh, look, are they twins? And we'd say, count again, you know, give it another shot, right? And and then later, I don't know if you had this, but people, when they, when they meet three, I don't know if it's maybe because of three, maybe it happens with twins, they'd say, well, which one is the smartest? <laughs> you know, or which one is which one's the best athlete? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And my wife, you know, and she, to the question, which one is the smartest? She would always say, "Not you, apparently," because <laughs> you know we didn't want to go there. We just there was plenty of um, competition amongst the three in utero, right from right. from the moment of life itself. We didn't need to add to that. And we tried not to. I talk about this in the book, something I call unique equals. And um, are yours uh, boys, girls, mixed? Two girls and one boy. Two girls and one boy. Well, there you go. Yeah. How about so, yours? Pardon me? How about yours? Three boys. Okay. And so the concept of unique equals, I'm one of five. Uh, I'm the youngest of five boys. And... As the youngest of five, or anywhere in a normal birth order, um, first of all, you're somewhere in the birth order. And then, so you're not really equal. <laughs> you may be unique, right? In my family, I was unique because, amongst other things, I was the baby in the family. But I'm not equal by any means, right? I'm the, young, I'm the low man on the totem pole. Yeah. With the triplets, what we found, I found fascinating was if you didn't intrude on the reality of it for them, if you didn't, you know, in, insert something artificial, their view was they all stood on the same ground. So if he could do it, I could do it. You know, now, very unique individuals, as it has turned out, to be very clear, and we always saw them as unique. But if you didn't create one as the smartest or one as the one that plays baseball or the this or that, they saw life as if he can do it, I can do it. And it's it's a fascinating dynamic if you just let it be, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I suspect that's true, even though girls and boys are different, obviously. But I suspect there's some truth in that for your triplets. Oh, absolutely. We, we tried very hard not to refer to them as the triplets. Um, right. Because it, it, me, I'm actually a twin myself. And oh, I are remember, you? I am, yeah. I remember growing up with my twin brother, it was always Michael and Jimmy, Michael and Jimmy, Michael and Jimmy. Never yeah. us individually. So I always had it in my head that you know, I, want, I want them to be individuals and not, you know, so if somebody would say, what are the triplets up to? I'd, I'd be like, I'd try to just gently correct them a little bit. Yes. Um, yes. But we did see in terms of like development and, and first steps and first words, they all followed the same pattern. It was really interesting. Like Maggie was the first to do everything. Um, 
Patrick would follow on her heels, and then it was Grace. Um, and it was, and it always followed. Whether it's talking, whether it was walking or pulling themselves up, I've got this yes. great picture. They're all around this round table at my parents' condo in Florida, and they're just pulling themselves up to stand. And then you know, a month later, they're walking. But it was Maggie took the first steps first. Patrick saw it, tried, saw it, tried, and then he would tear across the room. And then Grace always, she she always took her time. She was like, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on this. <laughs> yeah. Walking, I like being carried. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just so so fun. Right, but there was there was that's a great example. And there's in that moment, there's no, they they may have their own pace and their own choice about what they do and when they do it. But there's no doubt, I think, when you know with triplets, there's no doubt they can do it. She she waited. Braden, our son, Braden was a little cautious like that, um, but he wasn't worried about being able to do what his brothers just did. Yeah, you know. Um, anyway, so that's a that's a yeah. that's a fun thing. So, what prompted you to to write a book about this? I mean, I know your you know your background you know was was in writing. Um, but um, what what got you thinking to, to write a book about this? Well, it's I don't know if you've had this, but early on, people would say, "Oh, you should write a book about triplets," and and I thought, really? I mean, how many how many dozen people are going to be interested in that? You know, and and who had time? I mean, we were slammed with with the three babies coming home all at once, and and just you know, the no learning curve, let's go, here we go, and trying to figure it all out and, and, and work at the same time. Both of us still very, very active in our careers. So there was no, I, I made notes because I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm a note taker and I would uh, have, you know, the occasional journal entry and Barbara, when the, in the second year after we started to recover a little bit, Barbara uh, kept some journal notes for about nine months um, and I, I had, a, I found a file that was called monologue notes and it, and it was jokes basically. And I thought, when I looked back, I thought, what was I thinking? I was going to do, you know, a stand up, you know, a Ted talk on triplets. I don't know, but, but I, that's kind of my, my way. I, I, I keep things. I, so we got together, we had moved and some stuff files appeared and we started looking at it and we got the boys together and we sort of read through some of the, they were in, you know, ex little snippets of experiences and we were just laughing and they were laughing. And we thought, I came away from that. They were now off to college. We had the freedom, some, you know, lots more freedom. And I thought, well, this this could be a book. And and what I wanted to do was share the experience we had that Barbara and I had, uh, and you know this, with our sons, first of all, because they didn't know a lot of what we had gone through and they didn't remember m most of what we had gone through in the early stages. I mean, you know, kids, you start talking about when they were three or four or two or they don't they don't remember for the most part. They don't remember specifics particularly. So that's what I thought, well, I want to share this. And then I realized, well, there's, there's a book here and it, and it, and it could be, 
revealing and, and, and something where I share not only with my family but with others. Um, and then I, this added piece of my book is a kind of father's observations of what's going on in the world we're leaving to the triplets. And I'm an activist and a, I come out of a newspaper family, so I'm sort of wired to, to be in tune, to be, um, try to be informed. And I thought, well, we're, we're driving down the road, raising up these kids, and there's a lot of stuff happening you know, as we go that again, I wanted to share not only with the reader, but with my sons. Like you might, you might want to know that in addition to self, before there were cell phones, you know, or in addition to before Google, there was this stuff happening, you know, to give them more context, I think. So I think the reader, the reader gets a, a kind of a double, uh, a double, a double history or whatever you want to call it, double observation. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about some war stories. Uh, okay, because, great. Um, I remember, and I'm, I'm curious as if, if this was your experience as well. Um, I remember when, I, when the kids were born, I was 27. I was, I mean, if, if I was mid-management at my job, I'm, I'm probably giving myself a promotion. Um, <laughs> you know, I was still pretty young in my career. Yeah. And um, I was not sleeping at all because my wife had a C-section, as most people who have multiple, certainly triplets, it's exactly. a safer way to, safer way to yeah. go. So she was still recovering, so I was doing all of the nighttime feedings, uh, which were important because our kids came home um, all under five pounds. They were in the NICU for uh, a month. Until they, they got to home. four, got to four pounds. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you know... Um, and then, but basically, what we found out after the fact was our insurance company was pushing the the hospital to discharge them. Yes. Um, which which we could probably you know, <laughs> I could do a podcast series on my feelings towards insurance companies. Yes. But um, but I wasn't sleeping at all because my wife she was still recovering, so we had to feed the children, the kids, the babies every three hours. So you know, nine p.m. 12 a.m., 3 a.m., yep. and after you finish the third, it's almost time to start the first again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because so you're, was, fee you're feeding and burping and changing Yeah. <laughs> times three. So I, yes. was, I, was, um, I was walking into my office. I was working. Um, I probably shouldn't say the name of the company. Big financial services institution. And um, I remember one day my, my boss pulled me aside. She, she was not a mother, didn't have kids. And she said, hey, I'm worried about you. And I said, oh, thank you. Like, things have been really hard with the kids. I'm not sleeping at all. I'm averaging maybe an hour a night. She's like, oh, no, no, your performance is slipping. Um, we might have to put you on some kind of a, a improvement plan. And I had always been a high performer. Um, and I'm like, excuse wow. me? I'm like, excuse me? She's like, yes. We noticed that you're tired a lot. Um, you, you know, you're not really participating. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I can only tell you that I'm not sleeping at all because of this huge transition that I just went through. Um, she's like, well, you know, I needed to talk to you about this, blah, blah, blah. So that prompted me and my wife to uh, hire a night nurse. Yes. Now, the, the night nurse was a woman we had met. She was one of the nurses in the NICU, and she told us, uh, this woman was so lovely. She, she said, hey, look, me and some of the girls, 
we, you know, on our nights off, you know, we, we still stay up because we have to have this nocturnal schedule. So um, if you want, you know, we, we'd be happy to come to your house. Um, so we called them one night and I, it was all the money in the world to me, $30 an hour. And they work 12 hour shifts. Um, so we yeah. called them and so Rita came over and she said, okay, it's 7 PM. You and your wife are going to bed. I don't want to see you till 7 AM. We got our first good night of sleep in months, and I was hooked. I was hooked. At one point in time, we hired them six days during the week. Wow. <laughs> but just to get a good night's sleep until we got them on a schedule. Yes, um, yes. A sleeping schedule, which was a story in and of itself. But what, what's your take on sleeping schedules? Well, it's so great what you're saying um, because that's, that's almost precisely what our experience was. When we left, when um, – one of the boys was went straight to the normal nursery. One of them, uh, the other two went to NICU, uh, one for a week, the other for a couple weeks. And then when they finally all came home, Barbara was at home recovering from a C-section, as you said. Um, I had hired an, a nanny uh, to live in to help us. But um, and and so when I was picking up the the last of our sons, the nurse at the hospital said. Mr. Cassidy, the, the triplets are on a schedule. You need to keep them on a schedule. And I said, oh, yeah, thanks. Good, good to know. And she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, no, listen to me. You need to do this. If you don't keep them on a schedule, you're going down, okay? They, they will take you out. I went, okay, okay, okay. So we, we had a major schedule. But as you point out, in the early going, it was just Barbara and me. Um, and then because our, we burned out our nanny in three weeks, she just disap- literally disappeared. <laughs> it was like we took her to the, to, you know, to the bottom of the hill one morning and she said, goodbye, Mrs. Have, you know, don't work too hard. And we never saw her again. Right? Yeah, like, like, that's, the, that's the exact beginning of Mary Poppins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, um, boy, if only we'd had Mary. But then... Um, so then we had no one for, for weeks on end. And it was exactly as you said. I mean, in our case, it was four hours. So eight and then midnight and then four in the morning. And we were doing it together and Barbara was nursing and she was amazing. Um, but we, we were so tired because as you point out, there's not that much time once you finish the, the midnight feeding. Pretty soon you're up at four doing the next one. So we weren't getting any sleep. We weren't getting the five hours you need to be sane. Yeah. Um, we were so tired. We were telling government secrets we didn't even know. You know, we were just like, we were like uh, <laughs> tortured people. And uh, it was brutal. And then we finally got a night nurse uh, who came. I think we paid her 100 bucks for the night uh, and happy to do it because we could sleep through the night. So in the middle of, well, maybe three in the morning, I wake up to a popping sound and I go to the window of our bedroom and I look out and there's a glow up on the hill behind our house. And I go, what's that? And I go to the front of the house and look out onto the street and there are fire trucks on the street for as far as you can see, down the hill, up the hill, lights flashing. And I thought, oh my God, there's a fire, right? So I go back to the bed and and I wake Barbara and I say, Barbara, I think the house behind us is on fire. 
And she said, is our house on fire? And I said, no, but I think the one right behind. And she said, wake me up if our house is on fire. <laughs> and she went right back to sleep. I mean, we were paying for, for you know, shut eye, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, brutal, brutal. Um, and that's partly in the book, too. We would sit in the nursery at four in the morning. And it was like it, it, we had had some experiences. We had traveled and and done some things. And so we'd sit there and we'd look at each other through bleary eyes and she'd say, remember France, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd go, yeah, you know, and we'd sort of go back there. And then at one point I was thinking about my father and I thought about the, his campaign for mayor. There's actually a bit of that in the book as well. So it was like that. I mean, it was survival, wasn't it? I mean, you just had to survive. I, you, you had to have a sense of humor. Um, yes. And that's the one thing my wife and I talk about is yes. that because if, if we didn't have a sense of humor, like you, you were doomed. Um, you were doomed. I remember one night, middle of the night, um, I'm changing one of the kids. They're squirming. I can't get them to, to, to be still. My wife, like, meanders in. And I just look at her and I say, I don't know what the F I'm doing here. <laughs> Like it just, it just, <laughs> exactly. I just exactly. I'd probably change a thousand diapers up until that oh, point yeah. in time. Yeah, and I'm like, I just don't know what the f I'm doing here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm I was a an Olympic grandmaster diaper changer. I mean, you know, uh, we at the end we did a, a diaper service because we didn't want a landfill named after us. Yeah. So <laughs> we they gave us a count after we stopped the service and we did 35,000 diapers in, in the, whatever it was, three, three and a half years. Um, it was just I, insane. You know, you're a better man than I, I bought stock in Pampers. That's <laughs> been smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. did you, uh, did you, I promise I'll get to serious questions, but I'm just fascinated by this. Um, I, I don't find too many brothers in arms. Um, yeah, exactly. You, Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> did you and Barbara ever have phantom baby syndrome where you're lying in bed and you just imagine that you're lying on one of the kids who is not there? Um, did that ever happen to you guys? We didn't. No, that's oh. that's scary to me. Uh, very, they very came, scary. Yeah, they came home to three cribs. We did have three cribs and we learned we got we had uh, baby nurse, a baby nurse in the beginning, because we knew nothing. We didn't know how to feed him. We didn't know how to diaper him. We really didn't know anything, but we had three of them and three cribs. So we were trained over uh, probably a week with, and she was there at night, but she was really the kind of safety net, right? That we wouldn't mess up, uh, something along the way. And so we were trained and learned to you know, not only change them and do all that, but to kind of swaddle them and park them on an angle and, you know, all the stuff. And so they, um, to the extent they slept, which was, you know, every four hours, they went off like an alarm clock. The schedule thing that the hospital <laughs> suggested was diabolical. I mean, they literally at 12 o'clock noon, they'd go off. And then at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, they'd go off. All three, like a like yeah. a smoke alarm, right? And one day we had people over, and at noon, 
they, we were chatting in the dining room and all of a sudden up in the nursery, there's the alarm goes off, right? And we realize, oh my gosh, it's noon. Barbara runs upstairs and I go in the kitchen to make a couple of bottles, three bottles, because we were mixing, she was nursing and, and, uh, you know, formula. And I, by the time I'm on the stairs going up with the bottles, it's quiet in the nursery. And I thought, wow, how's that possible? And I walk in, <clears throat> she's got a boy on each breast <clears throat> and her knuckle in the, in the mouth, excuse me, <clears throat> her knuckle's in the mouth of the third boy. And like your point, I walked in and went, okay, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got nothing in this deal right here. And, you know, I just set the bottles down and left. <laughs> yeah. So did you, um, humbling. did you ever, did you ever, um, cause we had, we had baby monitors, uh, so we, we could hear them when they would wake up in the morning and this is kind of getting past the time where we had to feed them every few hours. It was, you know, they were all at kind of weight and sleeping almost through the night. Did you ever just lie or wait in bed in the morning and just listen to them talk to each other? Yeah. Well, we, I messed this up. Dad and dad, um, error, you know, new dad error. Um, I set up the monitor and after two nights, I said to Barbara, why do they need to hear what we're doing? And I realized I had set it up <laughs> the wrong, <laughs> the wrong way. Okay. So we got that straight, but, but yes. And we used to, we used to come in in the morning and they would be up on their feet, the three and three cribs and kind of like chatting like before they could really talk, they were yeah. chatting like neighbors over the f a fence to each other. It was fascinating. It was great. It was great. Yeah. They would have yeah. full on conversations, inflection and tone, yeah. giggle. Like they knew what they were saying to each other. Uh, <laughs> they did. I think they did. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And then, and then we got to the point where we hear a thump and then we'd get into the room and then all three would be in one crib. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. So they, they, yeah, like when they started to, when they could, uh, especially the boys, when they can ex escape from the crib, it's very scary to me. Yeah. And we had read about a kid that I think it was in the Midwest somewhere and it was winter and the kid got out of his crib and got to the door and got outside and it was bad, you know. You, yeah. So we there's so much paranoia <laughs> around being a parent. You know, not to mention a, a parent of one has paranoia and worry and concern. It just comes with the territory and apparently never ends. Um, but to have three, it's times three. Um, yeah. So many cases we, I would kind of monitor them and, and you know, you get sort of a sixth sense of what they're doing. And, and with three boys, they were puppies in a pile a lot of the time and or up to something they were really uh mischievous yeah. but you know in a very innocent way but it was like you got to keep an eye on them because i don't want to go to the er right, <laughs> right. <laughs> which you know happened once at least but yeah absolutely absolutely when um when our kid we were we were we were having a hard time like once they hit like a year old we were having a very hard time getting them down to bed at night. So I would, mm. I would get in the door, we would feed them dinner, 
and then we would wait for them to fall asleep in in, in like their chair or something. And, and at, at times, they would only go to bed at like nine o'clock, mm. and and then they wouldn't all fall asleep at the same time. And it was very frustrating. And um, we, we talked to our pediatrician about it, and our pediatrician says, "Oh no, no, no! You're doing it all wrong." Seven o'clock, you put them in their cribs, let them scream their heads off if they want to, and you do not go in there um, until it's quiet. And I said, that will never effing work. I was, I was just getting mad. I'm like, you don't know what it's like to have triplets. Yeah. Um, you know, that'll never effing work. And my wife is like, why do you have to be such a jerk all the time? Just try it. And, and the pediatrician's like, hey, look, try it for three nights. If I'm wrong, you can come back next week and tell me I'm wrong. Well. First night, kids are screaming their head off. Second night, it's a little bit better, but they're still screaming. Third night, we put them in, and they just go right to bed. Wow. And, and, uh, and then, then I'm like, okay, but something's wrong. Like, something, they're dead. They're, there's, there's a gas leak, <laughs> and there's, there's some kind of problem in there. Yeah. Sure enough, it's I walk in. Carbon monoxide poisoning or something. Yeah. I walk yeah. in, and they're, they're fast asleep. And I'm like, holy then I started to realize that I don't have all the answers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, there was something to the Ferber method, but that was another sort of milestone that changed our life was, was getting them on a sleep schedule. Uh, oh, yeah. Like Big time. Great. We did we did the Ferber method very much as you're describing it. Um, we had a more of a routine at bedtime. It was <clears throat> you we'd eat, they'd have their dinner. They'd get to play for a little while, and then they had a bath, then into their cribs for a reading, reading a story, one would, one in rotation. We did this thing called choice man, choice person, and one would sit on mom or dad's lap for the reading, and the others would listen. Then we'd play music, and they'd go right to sleep. But it was, reg- it was re- I mean, when seven o'clock came, it was like, here we go, we're on the trail and by eight o'clock they were they were asleep and, oh, i mean yeah. we couldn't i don't think we could have survived but they didn't always sleep through the night to your point so we had to do the fervor method and and it's it's very much like what your pediatrician said except you let them cry and then you go in and check them to make sure they haven't come uncovered or aren't snaggled and you know you you make sure they're safe you rub their back or whatever and then you leave them. And they, if they cry, you leave them for five or ten minutes more. And then you go back. Just make sure they're okay. <laughs> so we did that on night night one. And first of all, we're thinking, as I'm sure you did, like, Ferber, does this work with triplets? He doesn't talk about triplets. He talks about one baby, you know. So because one would wake up and that would wake up the other one. And then pretty soon all three. Again, it's the smoke alarm deal, right? So... We we just tried it. We said, all right, we'll try it. And it did take three nights of of going in, making sure they were okay, letting them cry. But finally, it worked. And it was just, it was like getting a raise. I mean, it was a yeah. huge, huge advance in, in the whole deal, for sure. So yeah. when you uh, sort of went, you know, in, into your Wayback Machine, um, as you started, <laughs> you know, putting this book together. Yeah. Um, did you, I mean, I guess I'm just curious as to, like, what emotions were you experiencing when you were kind of putting it all together in, in the manuscript? 
Um, you know, were, 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 were you, yeah. uh, did, did um, you have any post-traumatic stress or anything? Like that? <laughs> he, a, a little, <laughs> uh, mostly it was, uh, gratitude. I have to say, um, <clears throat> it was so challenging to start our family. And then so incredibly, we lost a baby girl born too soon in, in the run up to, to having the triplets. And when Barb got pregnant with the triplets, we thought, oh my God, you know, what if we have another horrible disaster, but this time with three um, babies. <clears throat> and then we had a couple people say, well, you know, you can reduce the pregnancy. And that part of the book for me was the most excruciating because it brought back that incredible, um, it was just painful. Uh, we, it, we were, <clears throat> she was being driven by hormones times three, as any mother would be who's pregnant. And I was being driven by fear times three. How would we... <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> How would we get through this? How are we going to afford this? Um, and then, really, are we going to some, somehow reduce this pregnancy, you know, from three to two? And we were on that precipice for for weeks, it felt like. And then we, thank, thankfully, f f some friends sort of gave us some guidance, and this is in the book, and we decided, all right, we're going to take responsibility for having three. We're just, and we're taking responsibility for everything that comes with it. Um, and that was, that was a really emotional for me, part of the book to, re, to relive, relive, relive that. And then having gotten through that, the gratitude that I feel in every day still for how it all turned out. It's just extraordinary. And, and uh, you know, so, yeah, the other, uh, many of the other parts were fun to relive. Uh, there's a part of the book where the boys had a terrible baseball coach. And that was hard. That was hard to relive. It was really destructive um, in our family and other families at the high school. And... Um, I, I wanted to write more about it, but I decided I shouldn't and wouldn't. Um, but, but it's there. And that was, that was very uncomfortable to revisit. Um, yeah. but a lot of it was, was being grateful. So there is a, um, you know, a subtitle to, to the book, um, you know, adventure raising triplets in a country being changed by greed. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about, about that part of it. I know you alluded to it before, um, you know, earlier in our conversation, but why was it, why is it important for you to kind of put current events, um, into the book? Right. So, um, what I wanted to do was, since we were taking responsibility for all of it, for the, for the, for the triplet pregnancy, for how it might turn out, um, we also felt, and I particularly felt responsible for 
making the reader and making our sons aware of the 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 America they were inheriting, an America very different from my father's America, uh, an America very different from the America that my brothers and I came up in. Because until the nineties, um, you really we we would not have had children, but for in vitro. Uh, you know, fertility medicine. So, so that's a big difference. We we wouldn't have a family today if it hadn't been for that. And then, and then the America they were going to inherit was going to be different yet again, f- for various reasons. So I was noticing that. I mean, I'd finish, we'd get them to bed. It'd be eight thirty. We're exhausted. I'd sit down and watch the news maybe, or I would read the paper, catch up on, on, you know, trying to stay, (laughs) um, conversant with life outside of our house, you know, and, um, and I saw these things happening that were interesting to me, but also I felt were game changing. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to notice them. Now, all the things I talk about, for the most part, occur in this window from the early 90s when we have our family to, to 2013 or whatever it is when they go off to college. So I'm not, I'm not writing a historical piece. I'm not going outside of the boundaries. Although at one point I did overshoot the runway. I did uh, in writing... And my editor said, uh, you know, you need to pull this back. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I got into Trump land, I think, at, at one point, And it was like, no, no, no. But so it's, 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 um, it's a commentary in, inside that window in which the book is taking place. And I wanted to, you know, point, for, it was for me as well. I wanted to point at it and notice so one of the, the, probably the biggest underlying note is that since the 80s, since Reagan, frankly, um, the country has been deregulated in many, many ways across many, many industries. And some folks, of course, say, well, you know, deregulation is good for the job creators, you know, and I understand that. But it's actually not. Um, it turns out, if you look at the history, regulation, smart well-enforced, intelligent regulation saves lives, saves businesses, saves fortunes, um, saves people from missing work. Um, and there's case after case that demonstrate that. And yet we've, we've gone off on this. And again, very, my father's America was, you know, more or less unregulated. Uh, the America, my brothers came up in, uh, and, and, and the early part of uh, the America, the early part of our kids were coming up and it was regulated. Uh, I talk about going into Toys R Us and there's warnings on toys, useful warnings. <laughs> Good to know. This is a choking hazard for a child under three. Well, thanks, you know, because I might have bought that not knowing. Um, seat belts, um, you know, on and on. Food, food inspection. Uh, regulations have have been very good for America. And, and then what I noticed is they were being pulled out of the financial system or pulled out of the, the fundraising, you know, money and politics system or pulled out of, um, uh, if you look at the deep horizon spill 
in the Gulf, which was devastating. Uh, you don't get that without deregulation. Um, if you look at Enron, uh, the largest bankruptcy still, I think, in American history, when 28,000 people, something like that, lost their jobs overnight, you can't, that doesn't happen if you have intelligent regulation. So I just thought it was pointing, worth pointing a finger at. And, and it, I don't, I think I've avoided it being a screed or a, or a rant. Um, and, and most folks, now that folks are reading the book, I'm finding there's, folks are interested in it. Some people are skipping over those parts, I suspect, <laughs> you know, uh, let's get to the next baby section, you know, which is fine. Um, but other folks have said to me they they've sort of enjoyed it because they're going along in this adventure and then they there's a little bit of a departure but the de but the departures come up in the timeline um and I'll, i always think of 2000 the boys were five and we put them to bed and we're watching uh i just remember brian williams on nbc i guess and they're reporting on the fact that the the Supreme Court is giving the election to George W. Bush, even though he lost the election by 500,000 votes to Al Gore. And Barbara says, oh, my goodness, this is the this is the beginning of the end. And I thought, well, that's a little dramatic, isn't it, mom? You know, and uh, and then, you know, in retrospect, uh that was a that was a watershed moment um and worth remembering again um do do millennials know about that care about that think about that um i don't know but i thought that's worth pointing at um as we move along now that's that's not exactly deregulation in that case but um we're coming home from baseball one afternoon and this this community of San Bruno, California, explodes. Uh, people are killed and, and dozens of homes are destroyed from a gas leak in San Bruno, California. I mean, it's just like, you know, just on an ordinary afternoon after school for us. Um, and when you look, it's because there was no regulation of the gas company. They weren't required to maintain the pipes and it's costly to maintain the pipe. So let's not do it, <laughs> right? And then the neighborhood explodes. So I just thought those were part of the context in which, all, in which the triplets are, you know, that story is, is occurring. Does it make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. You know, there, there's it contextualizes. Yes. Um, it helps to contextualize the experience. That's... That's for certain. That's right. Uh, have uh, have the boys read the book, and and what have they shared with you about it? If they have, they've read the book, um, and well, I have to say, my son Jackson is actually still reading the book. They've had it for a while. Uh, uh, th they've all said uh, that they really feel like it's a story worth chronicling, uh, and. They, I think they knew pretty much what was going into it. Um, and, and so I don't think they've been shocked by anything. They're, uh, 
that they've read, they've been very, very positive, very uh, uh, complimentary, actually. And I, I, um, my publicist got me on the cover of a thing called Writer's Life magazine. And they saw that and they went, wow, okay. <laughs> you know? So I don't know, it took a, took a visual for them <laughs> to, to uh, appreciate what dad was doing, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, uh, I see the Emmy Awards behind you. I think those are Emmy Awards, right? They are. Yeah, there's two of them there. Yeah. Well, so I, the first one you mentioned was the one you won for... Um, New York uh, at Night. The program, the New York at Night. What was the other one for? So the other one was for um, the American Film Institute Tribute to Mel Brooks. And uh, I've been doing the AFI tribute since 2003. Uh, the first one we, I did was uh, Robert De Niro. The second one was Meryl Streep. It's been like that. I mean, really amazing. Uh, each one is different, of course, because the careers are very different. Um, but it's a live event. It's, uh, it's a biographical or filmography of the, of the honoree. Really fun. And the morning after we won the Emmy for Mel Brooks, we called him. And the first thing he said was, you're welcome. <laughs> it's like okay he, i i have such an appreciation for him and his work oh it's uh, amazing i remember as a young kid i saw this movie when i was way too young but history of the world part one yes um you know this is what happens when you know a child of the 80s left home alone quite a bit <laughs> you know, we, we we have cable tv and all of a sudden we're seeing <laughs> history of the world part one I mean, to this day, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Not sure that they could make it again. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I know that they are working on a series, History of the World Part Two. Oh, it's wow. A six or eight part series on Hulu or something. Yeah. But, uh, He's an amazing individual. I discovered something about him that I didn't know when we were doing that show is that he's very musical and he's very well informed about music and he's... I think he's been composing. In other words, I, and, and he's a musician and and knows a lot about music. And I I always think of him in terms of comedy. Um, but I so I got to discover this sort of musical side to Mel Brooks, which is great. Yeah, and then you, you clearly share that in common. Yes, your, absolutely. Your own musical yeah. background. Yeah. Very good. Well, I know we are uh, running out of time here, Court. I always like to end with a uh, little retrospective question, which is um, if you could go back in time and, and whisper some words of advice into your younger self. Now, that could be, you know, you as you're growing up, or it could be you as an expectant father of three. Um, what would you tell your younger self? What kind of words of advice would you share the younger Court? Well, that's... Um... That's a great question. I, I would tell myself, um, hang in there. Um, don't give up. And at the same time, trust, uh, you know, trust that it'll, that it'll be okay. Um, my wife and I think of that, and we thought of it with the triplets in, in, in respect to we were committed to having our family and, and, and not attached. If you can be committed and not attached to the outcome, it can be very powerful. So yeah. that, that's a kind of a, 
feels like maybe a dangerous space, but it really isn't. You, you're, so, yeah, I would whisper to myself, hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. Hang in uh, there so in the middle of the night at four in the morning. That's right. <laughs> Right. With the screaming, screaming kids in here. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, how many times, right? Like you said, I, I, you know, what am I doing here? It's you're overwhelmed at times and, and all you can do is hang in. Right. Right. Well, you know, now it's like things have come full circle because, you know, the kids are in college now. But when they come home, I can't get them to bed at nine o'clock. <laughs> I go to bed at two in the morning. Yeah. Uh, the only the only difference is now they sleep until about one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So they do sleep. That's yeah. Right. That's funny. Um, but I still have to feed them. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know. There's uh, there's that. Well, this has been a fun conversation. Of really course, the fun. book is not your father's America and adventure raising triplets in a country being changed by greed. Uh, Court, where can people buy this book of yours? They can buy this book uh, at Amazon.com. They can buy it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can buy it and order it up at your local bookstore. Um, I had a friend who ordered it the other day, and he got it from Amazon in one day, which I find is amazing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, in all the places you would expect uh to, to be you, you can order it in other words it's probably if you go into your uh barnes and noble store it's probably not sitting on the front shelf next to um what's his name's book that guy spare you know it's probably not next to spare but if you go to the cashier and ask for it they'll order it for you i'll get it for you that must be a true friend who uh, bought your book instead of asking you to give him one yeah yeah it's been it, yeah i appreciate that yeah and then, and then if they buy it and read it, uh, that's really a compliment, you know. Oof. Buy it, read it, and review it. That helps, too. Yeah, I've got some five-star reviews on Amazon, so that's good. The reviews are coming in. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, Court, thank you for uh, stopping by Uncorking Story and letting me uncork yours. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. A really, really fun interview. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.